Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining us today. Boys and men are suffering in silence. Men are less likely to seek out and receive treatment for mental health concerns. That's according to the National Institute of Mental Health. And that can have some horrible consequences. Though men are less likely to attempt suicide than women, they are much more likely to die when they do. Experts say that many men and boys don't talk openly about their struggles, and that makes it hard for them to seek out help. So this hour, I am talking with a psychotherapist and a mental health advocate who work closely with men and teenagers and boys. We will talk about the specific struggles they have and how we can better address them. And as we talk during this conversation, I want to hear from you. Our phone lines are open. Are you a man or a boy who has struggled with your mental health? Have you been able to get help? What do you want other people to know? Or are you someone who is worried about a man a teenager, a boy in your life. What questions do you have for my two guests? Call us at 651-227-6000. Again, that number is 651-227-6000, or you can call 800-242-2828. You'll find me on Twitter. You can tweet me at Angela Davis NPR. Let me introduce our guests. In the studio with me, I have Brandon Jones. Brandon is the executive director of the Minnesota Association for Children's Mental Health. He's a therapist and the owner of the business, Jagna Consulting. Good morning, Brandon. Nice to see you in person. Good morning. It's good to be here. Yeah, we've been talking remotely, and, mm-hmm. and now you're here. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Also, we have with us Bill Deckis. Bill is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Face It Foundation. Now, that is a nonprofit that offers free peer support groups for men struggling with depression, anxiety, thoughts of suicide, and general challenges. Hi, Bill. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Glad to be here this morning. Yeah. Now, we we know that many people are struggling with their mental health, but I'm not sure that that most folks realize that, that men who are struggling are less likely to receive mental health treatment. So, Brandon, I'll start with you. Yeah. Like, why, why is that? Well, Traditionally, we've been socialized not to really address our emotions in a setting where we express ourselves to other people. Typically, a lot of times men, we bottle things up or we work through things and we don't necessarily outwardly process them unless they're in settings that are deemed acceptable, like in sports or sometimes particular clubs and things like that. But we just haven't really socialized ourselves to express our emotions with another person, even in private. So it is correct to say that that men often suffer in silence. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And so there's still I think a lot of progress has been made in removing the stigma Mm -hmm. around mental health. But when you look specifically at men, and boys, maybe not as much. No, I, and we have to continue to create avenues for men to, and spaces for men to talk about it and not feel like, you know, that, they, that they're minimizing themselves or they're lowering themselves or they're treating themselves in a way that uh, they can't grow, they can't be masculine by expressing their emotions because they can and men should have those spaces to be able to do so. Mm. And, and Bill, what do you think about that? Why is it more of a challenge for men or, or boys to say, like, I'm not okay, I'm not doing all right? For, you know, from my experience, you know, um, one of the big things with mental health challenges can be a feeling of sadness and men don't really understand that feeling. We don't really grab it, grab that feeling and, and, and deal with it properly. So it comes out as anger. Yeah. So that's kind of how it presents itself. But it's, you're absolutely right. Is that we we're men are fixers. We're supposed to take care of everything. We're not supposed to have these emotions and these feelings. Right. And, it's until we find a safe place, as you mentioned, to be able to talk about these things 
it's uh it it just sits inside of us and uh we can't get it out you know a big problem that a lot of guys have me included is is we deal with a lot of shame and the way to step away from shame in your life is to be vulnerable to be open to be honest to share what's going on mm-hmm. and that sh- that shame loses its grip on us so what has to happen is we've got to find a place a way a safe place to where we can share. A lot of guys don't have many friends, right. real, yep. real good friends either to talk to. Yep. I hear women say that. Like, <laughs> my man needs some friends. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a big difference between men and women in mental health is that women have – they get together and they talk and they share. Mm-hmm. Men don't do that. Right. I want to take a, a couple of minutes here, Bill, to really get into your personal story, beginning with what you went through as a child that sort of was, I guess you would describe as the beginning of, of a lot of serious challenges. What happened in your childhood? You know, I, I, I always joke and tell everyone that I had just an absolutely normal childhood. Um, my mother and father were divorced when I was about six or seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and once my father left, um, it was me and my mother and my sister – and financially, we were in a really difficult place. It was we were on welfare, we were on free lunch tickets, that kind of thing. Um, what happened at age fifteen is my mother died of a brain aneurysm in front of me. So now I'm a fifteen year old kid who's shy, sensitive, emotional. Dad is gone, and my foundation, my rock, my mother is now gone as well. I really felt lost, but as you mentioned earlier, Brandon, I pushed through. I went through we, – we, we briefly touched on it earlier. I never went to college. I had great grades in school. I could have done it easily. But I never had that support from behind me, my parents, like you guys have pushed your children and helped your children along and that I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. But when your mother died when you were a teenager, weren't you given permission to cry about it, to grieve about it, to be sad? I didn't know what those feelings were. A lot of men and boys don't relate to sadness. Right. So – I didn't. I, re- I, I remember, I was just telling somebody the other day, I remember my mom's funeral, and I was hardly around. I went and sat in a room down the hall in a closet while all the people were there. Mm-hmm. That was, that was, that, that's a hard thing. And at some point, well, I'm sure we'll get into trauma. I mean, now we're talking about trauma. Yeah. But I pushed through, and I, I got jobs, and I worked, and I had some friends and that kind of thing. Um, I eventually found a wonderful my, – my wife, Wendy, who, who I married 35 years ago, and I bought a house, and I lived what everyone thought was just a normal life. You're a man, and you're doing yep. well. Yeah. But e- – Except I wanted to die. Mm. What does that look like? That's really dark. It's a place where there is no color. It's a feeling that I let everyone down. Everyone would be better off without me. That's a, a feeling of hopelessness. That tomorrow will never get better. I also felt nobody in the world could understand how I feel. Nobody. Boy, was I wrong about that. Mm-hmm. It was. It's ironic. My the the part where I plan to take my life is I owned a business over on Rice Street, off of Highway Thirty Six. And ironically, I drove that exact same route today. But I would drive down Thirty Six, and I had to exit on Rice Street to get to my business. I started going, thinking about if I just went straight, I would run right into the base of the bridge. And that would be it. So as days went on, I went further down highway before I turned off on my exit to where it got pretty radical to make my exit. I started taking off my seatbelt because I didn't want to live through this. I knew in my head 
everyone's life would be better if I wasn't here. That's depression. That's Mm -hmm. hopelessness. That's the darkness. And as you can tell by by what I'm wearing right now, my faith is very strong to me. You're wearing a a cross. Yep. I decided that this was the day. And I basically said, here we go. And for some reason, I have my faith. My car went straight. It didn't hit the bridge. I continued on down the highway, which to me was a sign that I have more to do. Mm. And you did have more to do. And that brings us up to here. Yeah, I want to talk about how uh, you ended up starting the Face It Foundation, but also your relationship with a friend, your friend Mark, who you had known for many, many years. Like Mark, that was your guy. And there was a turning point in your relationship with Mark that was helpful to you. Can you share that story? You know, we've actually even touched on it already a little bit this morning. So my wife and I were in church um, one Sunday, and it was a mental health Sunday. And I need to preface all this by saying Mark is my wife's cousin. So I've known Mark for 40 years. Okay. Actually, we're considered uh, an old married couple by a lot of people. <laughs> okay. Hi, Mark. Because we spend so much time together. Um, and uh, in the program, it said there's a speaker in between services, and it was Mr. Mark Meyer. Holy cow. Do you think that's your cousin? Nah. We went. Sure enough, there he was. His long curly hair, his power tie, the whole thing. And uh, this was years ago. And uh, he talked about his struggles and his challenges and his feelings that I just described as well. And uh, I talked about a suicide attempt, a very graphic suicide attempt. And um, I went up to him afterwards and we were shocked at the story because we didn't know the story. Um, But I also told him, I said, I didn't really know if, I didn't even know about depression. I didn't even think it was real. But you just described my story. You just told my story in your words. That was a turning point for me. That was kind of an aha moment that I need to get serious about this. So you and and your wife's cousin hmm? had a deep friendship and you're both to the public living lives that everything seems oh, yes. good. Oh, yes. Right? Yes. But suffering in silence alone. Brandon, what do you hear in in, in all of that? I hear a lot. You know, I want to kind of dissect Bill's story a little bit Mm. because I think there's some lessons Mm -hmm. and some similarities uh, in here for so many men. Like just going back to when Bill lost his mother and that isolation during the, Mm. the, you know, during the funeral, men isolate themselves Mm -hmm. all the time. We just we, we even when we're present, we might not physically be we physically may be present, but, you know, we're not spiritually there. We're not connected. We're isolating because we don't know how to process those emotions. You know, one another thing Bill said was the reins of emotions to attach to talked about shame, guilt, fear. Those are emotions that men connect with all the time. Sometimes we even use those for status, for clout, to help identify who we are and how we stand in society. But what about the other things? What about curiosity? You know, what about, you know, the problem solving? abilities what about these other things that we have that we don't always tap into or we don't always get celebrated for having and i think you know what bill has just you know demonstrated through his own life story is a story that so many men have maybe not the same exact incidents but definitely the same process and what people go through um so thank you for sharing that bill i think that that's important for folks to understand and connect with but one more thing i want to share from bill's story that's important relationships solve problems and that relationship with mark and mark being a brave soul and sharing in his church. experience, yes. Right. Got up you in know, front of a crowd. I mean, think about how much courage it takes just to do that, to be that vulnerable. Mm-hmm. That vulnerable 
vulnerability unlocked a, another ability for Mark to go through his healing process as well. And I think that all men have an opportunity to do that with each other. Uh, I am thinking about Bill as a boy, as a teenager, mm-hmm. uh, carrying that grief of losing his mother. Mm-hmm. And then he continues to grow and get older, get married, become a man. But he's still carrying that mm-hmm. pain. Yeah. Right? Do you see that a lot as you, as a psychotherapist, work with boys and, and young men? Absolutely. You can't fix what you don't face. So if you don't deal with it, if you cover it up, you're not dealing with it. So we just keep sweeping things under that rug until that rug gets overfilled. And just like the pandemic, the pandemic lifted a lot of rugs for people and we had to face things and it became very tough. And we started to see that mental health for everybody was something, well-being was something that we needed to focus on. So as we continue to you know, sweep things under the rugs and we don't address those things, those things pile up. And then our life, our life develops, things happen, and then we get to a point where, boom, we're revealed, we're vulnerable, and we have breakdowns. And unfortunately, men have those breakdowns in silence. And then what do those – those breakdowns uh, can end up uh, showing themselves through violence, right? Absolutely. There's a connection to anger. Absolutely. And usually your anger is internalized first. So right. we see things like alcoholism, uh, self-harm, um, thinking of just suicide, suicidality, right? Just mm-hmm. thinking of not getting off the freeway. That was all internal. And think about the ripple effects it could have had on everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're just joining us, uh, we're talking about the mental health of men and boys specifically. And I, I want to hear from you. Are you a man or a boy who has struggled with your mental health? Have you been able to get some help? Uh, what do you want others to know? Do you want some guidance on how to begin uh, to start a conversation with someone who could help you, how to get help? Or are you somebody who's right now is just really worried about a man, a teenager, or a boy in your life? What questions do you have for our guests? Uh, our phone lines are open. You can call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. You can leave me a message on Twitter. I am at Angela Davis, MPR. We're starting to get some phone calls from listeners right now, so I want to take those calls. But first, I want you to know that if you are in crisis, that you do have a resource at your fingertips right now. You can call the Suicide in Crisis Lifeline 988. You can call 988 to talk with a trained counselor right now. Lifeline is free, confidential, and available 24-7, 988. All right, let's take some phone calls. In Duluth, we have David on the phone. David, thank you for for joining us and calling in. And what did you want to share with us as we talk about mental health, uh, particularly uh, for men and boys? Hello. Um, I have um, experienced um, mental health uh, struggles of my, my own. And um, in particular, I've uh, been suicidal in the past, and I've reached out for help. And I've, um, I guess, I find the phrasing that I've heard um, on so far on the show uh, troublesome because um, it, it's a lot of um, like I've heard the phrase uh, "men isolate themselves," um, and I've heard people say men don't know how to reach out for help or can't identify sadness in themselves. And um, I don't I don't think that stuff is true. I think that um, when in my experience, when I have reached out for help, I've experienced stigma for that. I found a a lack of mental health resources available for me. Um, Right now, I don't have a therapist. I tried so hard to find one, Mm -hmm. but um, it's it's difficult to find one and Mm -hmm. it's um and when i reach out for help and and i don't get it 
I end up feeling worse than when I started. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. I hear you, David. I, I want to let our guests address what you have said. Uh, we have a huge shortage of enough mental health professionals, uh, a lot of people on wait lists, and getting back to the stigma um, but that David said he's, he has asked for help and hasn't been able to receive it. And, and Brandon, what would you say to him? Well, I, I agree with uh, the point that was shared by David, and thank you for calling in and, and sharing those points. And we're, you know, we are speaking towards generalities and things that we've seen just in our experience. Um, and that's not that doesn't mean that it fits for everybody. And you're right when you do reach out and and you don't receive the help for reaching out and you need it, especially in those crisis moments, it can become very difficult. Um, and I would I would recommend too that sometimes and just due to the high demand for therapists right now, we know that we don't have enough. Are there other areas for you to get that uh, emotional and support? You know, are there other men's groups? Are there any faith homes that there may be out there? Are there friends to connect with? And continuing to try to find those spaces. And you bring up a good point, and, and this is something that we have an issue with in Minnesota, is in the metro area, there's a lot more therapists and things like that, but it, it's across the state there isn't. But even still, in the metro area, we don't have enough. So there is that we have to start having conversations about just general well-being and how to support folks no matter where they live so that they have some kind of connection and they can address the issues that they have. Bill, this is a good time for us to talk about Face It. Uh, what does Face It do? What does it look like? It's peer support groups. It, it is. And it, it's very interesting, this topic and actually just this caller. So thanks for calling in. There, There is a, a, a shortage of, of, of resources, especially outstate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Face It, what we do at Face It is we work solely with men to overcome depression, anxiety, fight suicide. We empower men to take back control of their lives. And we do that through support groups. We do that through retreats, uh, activities like monthly men's breakfast, classes on different topics, all that kind of stuff. Everything we do is free. And as far as we know, and we've been doing this since 2009, is that there is no other place like us in the country. And what I mean by saying that is that we get calls from all over the country of people looking for services. Now, granted, we can only help them here because we're local. But what happens in our support groups, we have guys from Hutchinson, the callers from Duluth. We have people that drive down from Duluth. We have people come from Spooner, Wisconsin, because there is such a lack of, of services. And the, and the key is, like you said, it may not be a therapist, yeah. but you may be able to sit with a, a group of eight or 10 guys that understand what you're going through. Yeah. So, Bill, walk me through this a little bit. I come in first time. I'm nervous. I'm scared about this. What do I see? What does it sound like? What does it look like? Exactly. And we and we understand that. We're guys. We understand how that fear is. So what happens if you are if you decide you're looking for help, you reach out, you find us on our website, you send us an email, you'll get a call back personally from Mark and he'll say, when can you meet with us? When can we chat? And we set up a time. What happens then? The guy will come into our office. He'll sit with Mark and I. It's only the two of us. The two founders. That's right? it. It's mm-hmm. us. There's no front desk. There's no nothing. You walk in. There's a door and, you know, mm-hmm. and that's it. But um, And we spend time. And that's what we call intake for people that have been through therapy. That's our intake. If you want, we have soda, we have water, we have chips, we have candy. We can just sit and talk. I'm probably in my workout clothes if it's early in the morning. And it's just very casual. It's very non-threatening. We provide a safe space. Right. And uh, and what happens is we, we explain who we are. We explain what we do. We show them the actual rooms about what happens. We have four of them that go on at a time. And uh, and these groups, they meet once every two weeks? Every two weeks, right. yes. Every two weeks, every every the evening, 6 to 8 p.m. And, and again, there's no, there's no signing in. There's no paperwork. There's no fees. There's nothing. And, and you get a put into a particular group. And we do that so that you become friends and comfortable and, and, and trusting 
the other eight to 10 guys in your group. I have in my notes a phrase that you use often is, at Face It, we sell friendship for free. We do. Mm. That, that uh, Mr. Mark Meyer came up with that one time is because we, 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 we struggle in how to explain what we do because it is so simple. There is no secret sauce here. We're providing friendship. And if you're struggling and don't know where to turn, boy, it would be nice to have a friend that will say, I get it, I mm-hmm. understand, and can share your thoughts. All right, let's take another phone call from a listener. As we talk about the mental health of men and boys, I'm talking with a mental health advocate as well as a psychotherapist. What are your questions? What are your stories? Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Uh, let's take a phone call from a listener in Plymouth. We have Pam on the phone right now. Pam, thank you for uh, calling in and, and waiting. And what did you want to share or ask? Hi, thank you for getting my call. Um, this is regarding my son, um, the 22-year-old. Um, he Your has son? some depression. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, he's a uh, 22-year-old. Um, he had some depression. Um, his depression got worse during pandemic, and um, he had um, anxiety too. Um, and um, with all these. Um, like um, he was um, at college and um, in the dorm, but he had to go um, home and mm-hmm. was kind of isolated during this time. But he was getting treatment uh, for that. Uh, but then in the past few months, um, he um, got um, very paranoid and um, has delusions and stopped taking his medications and doesn't want to go to the therapist anymore Mm -hmm. um, because of these thoughts and um, being suspicious of everything and um, doesn't trust anyone. He doesn't want to share anything with me and talk to me. How can we help um, these um, um, uh, in these situations as Mm -hmm. a family um, to um, have them, like they don't have insight um, and they think they don't need treatment how can we get them into treatment and how can we get them to trust us? I, all right, Pam, I want to have both of our guests respond to you. And uh, I'm sorry that you are going through this. I know it must be so hard. I can hear the concern in your voice. And, you know, Brandon, as I, I listen mm-hmm. to Pam's story, this is a story I've heard from mm-hmm. so many people, uh, young young adults, particularly those in colleges who've left yep. or they've left their jobs and they, they're they kind of stuck. And even like this is a young man who was getting treatment, but is now kind of taking steps backwards. So what can Pam do? Well, it sounds like the diagnosis may have progressed into something else. So I I would recommend, and I know it's going to be difficult to do this, but at some point getting reevaluated to see what else is going on with your son. The paranoia piece is the one that kind of pops up for me and kind of raises an eyebrow. Um, But I would say, again, we have to try to figure out ways – uh, to connect with this young man and figure out, well, what are his interests? Have his interests dropped um, since returning home from from college? Um, you know, what are some of the things that he enjoys? And can family come around here and him and support uh, inviting him into some decision making within the home if he's still if, if he's at home uh, to just get him engaged in being a part of the family process? He, he's probably aware that his mental health has shifted and has changed, and he probably feels that effect that the family's responding. How do you invite him in? to help kind of connect with the family member so he doesn't feel like he's isolated or shunned or he's doing something that's wrong or bad uh, to kind of just help support 
support his well-being in, in the space of the home. And then again, just trying to get him engaged in things. I don't know if he's working um, or if he has any hobbies, but just having him engaged with other people will be important to assist. And he might need to have, be introduced to a new therapeutic setting as well, if possible, to see if he has some more comfortability with that or someone else who may, maybe in the family, maybe a family friend who's done therapy that can have some conversations with him to let him know about the experience. But Brandon, couldn't this also be a case, because I've seen this many times, where someone just may need a new doctor or a new mm-hmm. medication or a new dose of a medication that yeah. that could bring about a, a change quickly. Absolutely. I, I would say a new evaluation. I think that the diagnosis here has shifted and then that would open it up for different types of treatment or different type of medications that potentially could be needed. So what does that mean? That maybe he was diagnosed with some disorder, Yep. but it, this could now be something else. else. Because yes. particularly with like teenagers and young adults, because their their bodies are still changing. Yep. Absolutely. That things are change yep and 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 it sounds like he was in college during the pandemic a lot of stuff has happened a lot of new information has come out a lot of experience has happened he could have been diagnosed at one point with let's say depression or something of that nature right and then later it could it could end up being like schizophrenia that just wasn't fully developed at the point of the diagnosis that paranoia piece is very important here and i want to keep stressing that when I heard that, that's when I was like, well, maybe there's something else going on that just wasn't diagnosed correctly at the point in time. But, uh, Bill, what would you say? What are the words? What does this mother do? Because, again, he he's an adult. She said he's 22. Mm-hmm. She can't make him do anything. He, that's true. And and this, this is becoming more and more of a common story. You know, we talk about yes. mental health, but there's a lot of things under that umbrella. We've talked about depression. You just mentioned yeah. schizophrenia. You know, anxiety has taken off. I know it's a big part mm-hmm. of my life, and, and I'm sure it's with this young man, too. You know, also, we've talked to other young men in this situation, and they've left college. They feel like they've failed. Yep. So now exactly. we're back into shame yep. and embarrassment. So, I mean, there are so many tentacles to this. I think, I think you're right, Brandon. I think there needs to be a new evaluation and kind of a new plan. Mm-hmm. But, and, and this isn't to push what we do, but we have, we have, we have groups that are specifically for men in their twenties because their challenges, some of the things they're dealing with are different than mine right. mm-hmm. as someone who's in their fifties. Cause they still may have close relationships with their parents. It could be all kinds of and things. Their, their first their breakup. It's, yeah. it's, yep. The mm-hmm. pressures of college. It's mm-hmm. what am I going? I'm supposed to know what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I'm 24 years old, right. the and jobs I don't. Haven't been established, right. right? So that's a good group. And you mentioned about finding a new avenue. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's a new group of friends or a new activity. You know, something like this. This young man could come and be part of these 20s groups and actually sit with other young men in their 20s that are struggling with. Probably some of the same stuff, except for the paranoia stuff that you've talked about. Right. Um, But again, the words. So family members, because we know our Mm -hmm. mental health professionals, y'all can't do Mm -hmm. it all. Mm -hmm. Um, What can family members say and do that is supportive? And um, and what what can we say and do that is not helpful? You know, I think back. I, I think back to my time way back when I was really struggling, even when I was young, when I was a teenager, and all that kind of stuff. I think if somebody would just tell me they care about me and just sit with me. And just be there. That was that would have been really important. What I didn't accept was people telling me what to do. You need to go to this. You need to do this. You need to make these changes. Yeah, that wouldn't have resonated with me when I was between the time my mom passed away to my twenties. That wouldn't have. I would have pushed back. But if I could have had people close to me just say, you know what, I care about you. I love you. I'm worried about you. Right. And I want you to get better. And as I mentioned b- before, Angela, what do you need from me? 
what can I do for you to help? Hmm. I never got those, and I don't know if I would have accepted them because it's you know afterthought. But I think those are important ways to approach it, at least in my opinion. Yeah. Anything else you want to add? We're going yeah, to take absolutely. Break, really quick. Um, and if the if if the answer to the question from the young person is I don't know, just offer that support and let them know that you're there for them. Because a lot mm-hmm. of times they don't know what they need; they just right. want whatever to stop, or they want to just get a break or things like that. So just let people know that you're there for them, and if they ever need to talk, that just all they have to do is just connect with you and that you're open. And the other thing that I would say that I think is very important is when young people are in these spaces and they and they're kind of in a rut and they don't know what to do. Sometimes it just takes exposure to something different. Um, maybe that's just getting out the house. Maybe it's going on a quick trip. Maybe it's trying a new restaurant, something to just get them exposure to just having a different experience. And sometimes that can help as well. All right. Our phone lines are full. Let's get to these uh, listeners. In Rochester, we have Jason on the phone. Good morning, Jason. What did you want to share with us? Good morning. Um, I'm an avid NPR fan. Uh, thanks for having me and thanks for having this discussion on mental health. Uh this is a brave moment for me. I haven't really talked about my, um, uh, my, my experience to the public ever. Uh, so okay. I'm a 10 year vet of the military. I, I, uh, was medically discharged about, uh, two years because of my, uh, mental health. Um, uh, what I wanted to express was I've had two, uh, incidences where I've almost ended my life, uh, in the past three years. And, uh, both times the police have been involved but I want to give the shout out to the police here in the Rochester area because they did the right thing. Uh, even though they tried to tase me once, they they were calm, they were kind, they were asking what did I needed. They just didn't bring me down and try to arrest me and pile on to my mental health crisis and arrest at the same time. They got me to the emergency room and got me the help I needed. Um, I felt lucky in that aspect, and I appreciate the police. Uh, another thing that came to mind is that every man uh, is different for the mental health needs that they need. Uh, for me, I don't need to be surrounded by love and compassion and, and a huge amount of people. What I needed was my small team. I needed my psychologist, my psychiatrist, and my primary care. And we all came up. They included me in the discussion of what I needed, and they started listening to me, and they made me start to believe my my diagnosis is, which is uh, anxiety, de- depression, and bipolar. And they got me the help that I needed. And also medication, men need to start thinking about it as a tool, mm-hmm. not just as a, mm-hmm. not, not stigmify it. I mean, not a medication weakness. has, right. yeah, well, weakness. Medication mm-hmm. has really helped me as a tool. And once I started thinking about it that way, I became more comfortable at using medication. So, yes, I'm on medication. I see a therapist every so often. Um, when I, when I became, when the mental health crisis came around, when I tried to commit suicide, um, those were the points where I started fighting it. Like, I didn't want to believe that I had those uh, diagnoses. And once I started to believe it, um, I became more comfortable. It took a long time, but it happened. And then my last, my last note is that... Um, uh, my therapist got me to believe that we're all human. So once a man, once a man be, starts to believe that he's human, then he starts to believe that emotions make you human and emotions connect everybody. So yes. 
I believe in emotions now. So, Jason, thank you for calling in and sharing your story. And uh, uh, you are brave, but you've helped a lot of people. So thank you for, for sharing your story with us. Uh, Brandon, uh, you and I were just mm-hmm. talking about in so many cases, uh, 911 ends up being called. Yeah. And that it, it begins, is the beginning of someone getting the, the help that they need. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't always work out well. It does not. No, it does not. And it's unfortunate that a lot of times people, that is their introduction to services is through a crisis situation. Right. <clears throat> we don't always want it to be like that. But unfortunately, that is that is the situation for so many people. We want to be as preventative as possible and, you know, get people connected to services as early as possible and not not wait till something blows up and doesn't right. go right for services to be initiated. Um, one thing I want to say about uh, Jason, thank you for your service and thank you for, you know, coming on here and being vulnerable and mm-hmm. sharing um, is Jason was heard. Jason was validated and Jason found the right regiment for Jason. And I think that that's a great approach for so many men and people just in general is to understand that there is no box kind of uh, check ABC solution when it comes to mental health. It's going to look different for different people. And when you find the right thing for you, work it to the best of your ability. And, uh, you know, Bill, Jason described he got a diagnosis, a diagnosis of anxiety, depression and bipolar disorder. And uh, he didn't want to hear that. Right. And again, that could be that's a sign of weakness. Right. He talked about he, he decided and accepted taking meds. Some people think that taking meds would be a sign of weakness. He didn't want to deal with that. I don't have this. That's, said it's you know, for tool. some people, yeah. for some men, the word depression is as traumatic as the word cancer. Mm. I mean, it can have a very tough attack on your body when someone tells you that you have depression. Mm. It can it can feel like it's just a real gut punch when we can work with it. We can. I mean, it's not cancer, but it has can have that same effect. And and the important thing, and you just mentioned it, and his call is is perfect for this. This is complicated stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This we somebody once told us we're not all data points. You don't go fifty five this that. Oh, here's your deal. Mm-hmm. We're not that way. Meds work for some people. Meds don't for others. Talk therapy works for some, not for others. Mm-hmm. He just said it perfectly. If you find something that's working, go get it. Because because getting the diagnosis that can actually be the if you could choose to look at it. That's the beginning of the pathway to being able to right. to manage it, so yep. that you can have joy right. in your life. Right. Uh, let's take a phone call from Crystal. Edwin is on the phone. Hi, Edwin. Thank you for calling in. Hi, Angela. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I'd like to share that I'm a licensed alcohol and drug addiction counselor. Yes. I have a program called Aspire Network. It's a nonprofit. I recently began um, a men's group. We meet every Wednesday from 5 to 7. So um, we are working with men around the Brooklyn Park, Brooklyn Center, Crystal, New Hope areas. Um Check this out. So um, for my recruitment, I have a flyer that says our group is targeting um, black, indigenous, and people of color. So th- this is a flyer that I take to barbershops, to salons, to places to kind of get men to come to group. Um, Edwin, what's been the response when you, you go to people and say, hey, we're doing these uh, support groups? What do people say? Well, in the barbershop, it's always a lively conversation. So... They would read a flyer, and three questions I asked on the flyer, I was like, how would you like to share your powerful stories of overcoming challenges in your life? Mm-hmm. How does your racial ethnic identity interconnect as a person of color in this society? And this is a safe place for men of color to explore their own identities, 
she had experiences in foster brotherhood. They are all excited about it. We have good conversation and share personal experiences. However, on Wednesday evening, very few people show up. <laughs> so that's oh that's the settings and the and in the barbershop they're willing to talk about it, but I going to the actual support group you don't get the the numbers the the, the men don't right. show up mm. right. and, and so I, i'm not deterred because i know in our communities um there's a lot of stigma around mental illness and mm-hmm. i don't even say mental health mental illness i say men wellness and support group that's mm-hmm. what i call it i stay away from talking about mental illness let's share let's talk Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's Edwin uh, there in Crystal. He brought up. uh, He says he's an addiction specialist, Mm -hmm. and I I had that in my in my notes somewhere about uh, the relationship between men, mental health uh, challenges, and addiction. Yeah. And so, Brandon, what can you tell us about that? Is addiction different when we look at men and women? Um, the difference is probably on. I wouldn't say. I would say there's not really a difference between the two of them. I think that socially utilizing substances to deal with emotional pain is probably mm-hmm. more acceptable for men. So go to the bar when things are tough. Go to happy hour with your friends. It's in all the movies. It's in all the TV yeah. shows. We've socialized. Hey, let's, let's That's have, how we. Yeah. Let's have yeah. a drink. Let's talk about it. Right. Yes. That's not necessarily always what you see when it comes to women, but they do have theirs too. You know. Let's have some wine and let's sit down and chill and let's have a mm-hmm. conversation. So for and that's just alcohol. We're not even talking about other substances as well. But the, I think addiction becomes very easy for men just because it's so marketed towards men as well. Think about things like the Super Bowl. Think about all these things where you have various different types of you know alcohol endorsements and things. So it's around and it's something that is it's okay to do for you to just get through the pain and kind of keep moving forward. Um, but for me, I think when it comes to men and substance use, I think one of the, the biggest things and probably one of the things that everyone's running into is that the language that's used to address the quote-unquote issue have been has language that men have already filtered through well-being and wellness men know that that's just another way of talking about mental health so the stigma piece is there and, he, and that's what he's fighting against but we have to get very creative on what we're inviting men to we just got done with the march madness tournaments it could have been like hey let's watch the game come watch the game at our place and then you know there's literally like 12 hours of basketball on there could have been some conversations going on about well-being think about the emotional expressions that happen in all those games whether you win or lose you see men crying when do we see that that could have opened up an opportunity to actually talk about men and mental health and what's going on anything you want to add about addiction bill or is does that is that a frequent part of the conversations in your uh, peer support groups um it is um addiction is one thing but coping is another absolutely you know if i'm struggling and i'm not happy with myself or whatever you know what if i drink it takes that pain away mm-hmm so not that they were an alcoholic, but they're using it to, to mask these, these, mm-hmm. these, these challenges that they're having. And that's not just alcohol. It's drugs. It's online porn. It's, yeah. it's affairs. It's all kinds of destructive, negative behaviors. And it's those things that really bring things down. And, you know, somebody told me one time about Face It. He says, this isn't my depression group. It's not my, my anxiety group, my suicide group, not my chemical. It's my life group. And I think it goes back to your message about we need to package it different. Mm-hmm. Who wants to come and talk about depression? Hello, anybody? <laughs> our, our, uh, the caller who called in, he described it as like, let's let's share. Come right. share your story, right. how you got through it. You know what? We have a monthly yeah. men's breakfast where we get 40, 45 guys that show up. And it's under the guise of bacon and eggs mm-hmm. and potatoes. But mm-hmm. someone will talk their story and share their story, and guys will ask questions. It's kind of mm-hmm. how you do it. It's a match, yeah. March Madness party. It's a. It can be anything. We just need to get together and talk. 
And and that's the cool thing. It makes for a safe place. And I would tell Edwin, because we went through this back a long time ago, him and one other person's a group. Yeah. Keep 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 trying. Don't give up. Because you started in the early days of Face It Foundation. Right. It, it and there was very few. two people, and now we have 22 groups, and it's, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And and again, most of these groups are meeting in the Twin Cities, because mm-hmm. you describe people driving from greater Minnesota yeah. here to the metro area. How do we get more groups to form in small towns and in, in rural counties of the state? You know, somebody has to drive the bus. Somebody's got to say what I'm going to set up. We do a lot of work with the Masons. Mm-hmm. And we speak at probably almost every Mason Lodge here now in Minnesota. What a wonderful organization. They're huge supporters of Face It. But we tell each one of them, if you're worried about mental health, have a mental health night once a month. We don't know who will come. Might be one person, might be six. And it doesn't need to be led by somebody with a PhD or a master's, Hello? right? <laughs> Although we appreciate the master's yeah. and PhDs oh, brand. Oh, that's so I, important. The mental health professionals. Sure. It, again, the lived experience can make you an expert. Exactly. And and just someone that'll be there and listen. And mm-hmm. be open. The, you know, the leader has to be honest and open as well. Bingo. You know what? I can lead a group because I can sit down and tell people what it's like to not have any hope. But here I am, example of what hope looks like. You are. <laughs> Let's take another phone call. In Rogers, Brian is on the phone. Brian, thank you for waiting. What did you want to share with us? Hi. Hi. Well, I have a couple of things. Um, one thing that was incredibly helpful to me was uh, finding out my Myers-Briggs personality type. Uh, my whole life, I never really felt like I fit in with all the other guys. And I went to therapy, and I took the Myers-Briggs, and I found out I was INF which is uh, less than 1.5% of the general population. For what does that men. mean? What does that mean, that personality uh, type? Well, it means that I'm an intuitive feeler, and I think and process information uh, more traditionally like a woman would. Basically, it means I'm a, a sensitive New Age guy, right? Mm-hmm. And when I read about my own personality, I was just floored by... Uh, the description was just so accurate. So um, I ended up in a, in a, in a forum online and I, I remember I posted a joke and like 75 people liked it and got it. And I'm like, wow, I found my tribe. These people <laughs> understand me, you know, and uh, I'm now help moderate the group. And that was many years ago. But um, what is your, thing I what is your group called, Brian? Uh, it's called INFP over 30, and it's on Facebook. Okay. All right. And, and go ahead. With, um, what else do you want to tell us? Yeah. The other thing was um, I have been attending a men's support group. Uh, it was founded by a man by uh, the name of Ernie Larson, who's now deceased, but it's called the Southside Men's Group. Um, I've been going there since the early 80s, on and off. Mm. My father and I were actually the only father-son team that attended the group. Um, but um, it's it's available on Zoom. Um, there's a website and uh, there's a Facebook page. Um, it, it meets in on Zoom and in person both. And it's just a place where guys can go to talk about, um, you know, Without any stigma, it's an open, safe environment. A lot of guys talk about feelings and challenges, and it changes from week to week, and I've found it incredibly helpful. All right, Brian and Rogers, the Southside Men's Group meets by Zoom and in person. Thank you, Brian, for calling in. Uh, before we went out of time, I want to try to take one more phone call. Uh, in Minneapolis, Victoria is on the line. Victoria, what did you want to tell us or share with us? 
Hi, thank you for having this program today. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a local youth worker of almost 20 years. I work with young people that are known as formerly at-risk youth. Uh, we call them opportunity youth now. Yes. Um, but I also want to talk about personally that um, I have a good job with a large nonprofit. I'm not throwing blame in any corner of that. It partners with the county. But um, when I sought mental health care last year uh, through my job, through all the proper channels, through my health insurance, I was charged $440 an hour, mm-hmm. and my therapist saw only $70 of that. Mm-hmm. So I would mm. like to know on a larger societal level what needs to happen. What happened was my son uh, all decided that he did not want to participate in health care, uh, in mental health care, from watching me go through this process. All right, and, Victoria, just in the interest um, of time, because we just have two and a half minutes left, uh, let me ask uh, Brandon about this, uh, the costs uh, yeah. of mental health care. Uh, there's the wait list to try to get it, and if yep. you do get it, you probably may not be able to afford it, even if you have insurance. Where where are we yeah. with this? We, What's have, gonna- we have major problems with our mental health system. I'm going to get in trouble for saying a little bit of this, but one thing that we have to start doing to move forward is we have to take a different approach towards mental health, and I think part of that is inviting public health in and taking a public health approach to to mental well-being so that the cost is reduced and we're helping communities, families, and individuals understand how to take care of themselves without necessarily seeing a professional that they have to pay for. All right. Um, We just have about a minute left here, uh, Bill. Someone listening for the first time in this conversation is really speaking to them, whether it's a a woman concerned about a man or boy in her life, or if it's a man who's really seeing or feeling felt and heard right now, what would you say to encourage them to get to the the next uh, phase of their life? You know, uh, reach out. If, if you're struggling, you don't know what's going on, maybe start with your primary care doctor. You can reach out to other sources. The primary care doctor can, can refer you to other people. Just speaking of from, from my standpoint, from Face It, if, if you're a woman and you're concerned about someone or if you're a guy that's struggling and you don't even know why, reach out to us. Send us. Go to our website. You can contact us there. You can send us an email. You'll hear back from Mark Meyer personally. We'd love to meet with you. And let's see what we can do to help. And, and, and that's just a point just got mentioned by the last caller. Is that everything we do is free and it's on purpose mm-hmm. because we don't want anyone to feel that challenge. We can take that away from a guy. And, and actually for a guy, that a lot of times will be an excuse. We can't do it because we can't afford it. We can't afford the copay. We don't do any of that. There's no insurance. There's no anything. So reach out. And, and if nothing else today, hopefully people have heard my story and realized there is hope okay. because it can get better. And uh, and face it's there to to hold your hand along this process and 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 navigate through it. It's been an honor for me to, to sit across from both of you uh, and and hear your stories and the work that you're doing. And, and thank you to all of our listeners who shared their stories. Uh, our time is up, but we will continue this conversation. I promise you we'll talk about it again. Uh, our two guests today, we've been talking with Brandon Jones, the executive director of the Minnesota Association for Children's Mental Health, also a therapist and the owner of Jedna Consulting, and Bill Deckes, the co-founder and chief operating officer of Face It Foundation. This conversation was produced by Danelle Cloutier, and Samantha Matsumoto. We'll talk again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.